The working life of a dancer is relatively short. Not in all cases, of course, but a day often arrives when a dancer can dance no more. So what are the options? How does one create new opportunities and future employment? Shane Cahoon was a professional dancer for 12 years before detouring into arts management, studying at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. It was a change of course that has allowed him a unique opportunity to contribute to various artistic forms and ensure longevity of career. Shane completed his training at the Royal Ballet School in London before taking contracts to dance with London Festival Ballet and work through Europe and Australia. An engagement as a guest dancer with WA Ballet brought him back home and re-energised him with a thriving arts scene in the West. He's worked with a range of arts organisations, chiefly in WA, and these include Deck Chair Theatre, the West Australian Ballet and the Black Swan Theatre Company. He is a champion of young artists, always ready to encourage, support and advise. He serves on ample boards, giving back to a community that encouraged him and assists in steering arts organisations to make their mark in WA and abroad. His enthusiasm and passion are contagious. His vision and energy is impressive. I'm thrilled that Stages had an opportunity to talk with a practitioner from the West and I welcome my old friend, Shane Cahoon. No, they were profiling community members. community members and I got an email one day and Bob's your uncle. There I was, one of six. Who were the other artists in City of Vincent? Uh, there were a number of, couple of visual artists uh, that I, I knew the names but I didn't know them well. Terry Charlesworth, uh, who's a, an elder of the dance community in Western Australia. Uh, so yeah, there were six of us. No one, just Terry and I from the sort of performing arts dance side of things. Do you remember the first time that you um, experienced dance with a, as an audience member or as a um, participant yourself? How old were you? Uh, quite young. The story goes from my mother uh, that she took me along. She was a great dance lover, loved going to the ballet all of her life um, and she took me along to a performance of Swan Lake now I must have been I would suspect six or seven something like that quite young and she says that I was mesmerized by it now Swan Lake is you know four acts it's quite long one of the big traditional classical works and apparently uh, in act three there's um, uh, a scene where the the wicked queen, if you like, um, Swan Queen, dressed in black, is suddenly revealed um, through lighting and whatever. And apparently that happened in the middle of Act Three, and I screamed out at the top of my voice, "Look, Mum, there she is!" <laughs> <laughs> so uh, apparently I was just mesmerized by the whole thing and I think that led to my mother taking me uh, along to a dance teacher in Perth and at the age of about six saying oh I think he would like to dance and his first year teacher is saying that he's quite rhythmical and that he'd like to you know he should do something along those lines. So, so you say apparently apparently you don't have any recollection of that Swan Lake? I in don't your, in your, myself no. no. No, that was a, a, a mother story. It's amazing because we, we're, as children, we're, we're sponges. Um, but I guess, you know, I think back and do I have a lot of memories from when I was six? Not really. No. You just rely on, on what the older generations are telling you. 
Now, there's a little text coming through. We'll ignore that. <laughs> now, I believe that, that uh, mum took you off to a teacher called Kira Buslev, Busloff. Uh, she did, eventually. She actually took me to another teacher at the age of six who said, look, that's lovely, but I think he needs to be a bit older. Come back when he's about eight or nine. So dutifully, mum took me off. Uh, and But she, during that time, she discovered Kira Busloff, Madam, as we all called her in Western Australia, in Perth. And she took me off to Madam at the age of nine, which is when I actually started properly doing ballet classes, etc. with her. She was the... Did she arrive with Ballet Russe or...? She did, right. uh, way, way back. Performed all the way around Australia during the Second World War, when they um, couldn't perform in Europe, of course. And then she stayed behind. Um, and was the beginnings of classical ballet, if you like, in Australia. There were a number of other key teachers that sort of spread around the country. And Kira came to Perth. Um, she set up a school, eventually set up the beginnings of what was then an amateur West Australian ballet, with the likes of Terry Charlesworth, who were also in uh, that first company. This is, you know, we're talking back in the early 50s. Western Australian Ballet is the oldest classical ballet company in Australia, uh, so older than Queensland Ballet and indeed the Australian Ballet, our national company. It's extraordinary to think of those stories of, you know, the immigrants who, who landed in Australia and were the, um, the ancestors, the founding members of a lot of our great arts organisations. Absolutely. I, I heard this terrific uh, story of the Vienna Boys Choir who got stranded in Melbourne, I think, during the war. Right. And a lot of those boys stayed on and grew up and became founding members of the great choirs and opera companies. And, oh, no, and all I didn't know that. that. Yeah, Amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's a terrific story. Well, certainly in the dance area and the classical area, that was very much the case. So who, who have been your great teachers or that have inspired you, that you, you think, that have supported you along the way? Uh, well, my great teacher, certainly Kira, was my, my foundation teacher, if you like. She had a real focus on males, so some of the top dancers... Paul Damasson, Stephen Heathcote, uh, people that are synonymous with Australian dance at, at the highest of levels, they all came out of Western Australia. Um, Eve, indeed, David McAllister had his early um, uh, training, etc., in Western Australia. So she was a great, she loved teaching boys. Uh, she had other teachers around her that. Uh, Kirill Vasilkovsky was another Russian teacher who worked very closely with Madame and he focused on the male dancers particularly teaching. So certainly that was sort of my core foundation um, training and then I went off to the Royal Ballet School so I guess my, my teachers there and I, I had a whole range of teachers during that three year period. So, um, I, WA, because of course we're talking about Perth, if, if people haven't clicked on yet. In the 50s, I, mad, I imagine, would have been quite a, a cultural desert. And so uh, to start a ballet company was quite something, I imagine. Peter, some people might say Perth is still a cultural <laughs> desert. <laughs> no, but I can assure you it is not. No. Um, but in the 50s, I think you're absolutely right. Right mm. across the board, I think there wouldn't have been... That we would have had visiting artists again in the theatre area we would have relied on you know the very best of 
British actors, and it would have been. But of course, you get the, the wonderful um, His Majesty's Theatre was we do was in existence built in nineteen hundred and six, I think. So around again, uh, built on the gold rush money. Perhaps, yes, or, it yeah. was actually built by an entrepreneur. Um, indeed, I think the Edgeleys were involved at the beginning of. Uh, and, and for paying for the beginnings of the theatre. It was not built by government money. Um, it was a private theatre at the time, so... Still with us. Uh, what was the response like at school to a, to, to a young fellow who was dancing? Well, traditionally, of course, there are all the stories of boys being bullied, etc. But I have to say, I never had any of that at school. Um, I had absolute support. I went to a Catholic secondary school uh, in Perth before I left to go overseas. And I had nothing but support from the fathers there and from other students. I would go um, pirouetting around the school and... And no one um, blink an eye. Down the aisles and whatnot. And yes, never had any problems at all that I can ever remember. So I, I guess I was lucky there. Um, very supportive family as well. Uh, so yeah. What did, what did the family do? Because. I know that you travelled around the world quite a bit. You were in Nepal and, and all yes. that. So, so how did you get there? Uh, well, when I was 13, my whole family, including myself, um, departed Perth and went to live in Kathmandu, Nepal. Uh, my father working for an Australian aid project. So the whole family um, landed there in 1970, we're talking. Um, I was 13. Uh, of course, they don't have ballet in Nepal. Funny that. No, funny that. Uh, no ballet, no schools, no companies, no nothing. So basically I had to, uh, for a while I did my own sort of classes. Uh, there were some students at the international school, uh, some of the girls who'd done ballet, so we used to sort of do a little class together, but of course nothing of any rigour or from a professional teacher. So um, I... Uh, through various uh, reasons, I ended up two years later, three years later, at the Royal Ballet School in London, um, or going over for an audition, having not danced for properly for two and a half years, I think it was at the time, uh, auditioning, um, and they suddenly said, oh, that's great, uh, can he start next week? <laughs> the school had just commenced their first year intake so I was a week or two late uh, from memory uh, and my mother looked you know we'd come over with a suitcase thinking they'd say well that's lovely but I think take Shane home to Perth back to Madam and uh, perhaps come back in a few years time when he's more ready but they didn't so um, I had a lot of extra coaching at the Royal Ballet School particularly in that first year to get me back up to speed because I you know obviously I needed a, a bit of work uh, having not danced properly for all those years, but so how do, how do you get that audition? Because this this is a time before um, <laughs> internet and emails, so it's all through phone calls and, and letter writing. Well, it it it's a, it's another story, Peter. Um, my father sold. He was he worked. Uh, he was a chief engineer of an airline. He used to buy airline equipment, aircraft e equipment, uh, off various suppliers and this man from England used to come to Kathmandu twice a year I think it was he came and he'd sell tires to dad would you believe 
<laughs> aircraft tires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, huge, huge costs cost yeah. and huge costs. You know, so it was big business for the various planes. So anyway, this he, dad brought this man home to our house for dinner. You know, he was there on his own in Kathmandu. And he was looking, showed around the house, and I had up on the wall my Chiketti exam certificates. Chiketti is a, a curriculum of dance that people do. And they were up on the wall um, in my bedroom, and he saw them. And anyway, the, uh, uh, the brother-in-law of this person was the Royal Ballet's ballet master at the time, a guy called Desmond Doyle. And um, this guy uh, said, I'll go home and, you know, we talked about ballet and what I'd done and what my, you know, I was still keen to do ballet as a career, even though I wasn't quite there and I'd left it all suddenly. Um, so it ended up, he went home, spoke to Desmond Doyle. Desmond said, well, I'm happy to see him first and then I can arrange a, an audition with the school. Anyway, that all dutifully happened over the next few months. Mum and I flew to London, one suitcase, basically, thinking they would send us back. Um, I did a class with Desmond Doyle initially. I remember he took me in, in this is, you know, 15, um, 15, 16, I don't think I was quite 16 yet, um, taking me into the Royal Opera House, you know, in through the stage door with Mum would wait in the green room while he took me off to the shoe department to get some ballet shoes because of course I didn't have it much anything really so he got me shoes from the Royal Ballet's you know storage stock, stock. Yeah. yes uh, he took me through class the first time um, and must have thought well you know he's got the basics we'll, we'll, I will stand my reputation and let him audition for the school so I did that the next day uh, and yeah the rest is history. They said he can start next week. So, wow. um, so I was left there. I was um, going to say, what was that like as a young fella? Well, you know, being suddenly um, extracted from your family. Yes, totally. Other side of the world. Mum leaving me. I had nothing. Virtually no clothes. Certainly no really cold weather clothes either. You know, it was so. Must have been devastating for her as well. Yeah, I think it was devastating yeah. for both, I yeah. think. So mum went off, leaving me there. But in the knowledge that the Royal Ballet School, being the school that it is, actually had staff on board that were counsellors. They had arrangements with uh, various people where you could be billeted, as they call it in those days, with family. So I ended up with a family, an Irish family, with about 10 children wow. and a couple of other Royal Ballet students staying there. So in my first year, I, I certainly wasn't lonely at all from that perspective. So, you know, they provided the meals. They looked after me basically for my first year. I also had a, a family that were good friends um, and I used to go and visit them as well at weekends and stuff. So I did have support there. But yes, it was particularly that first year, it was difficult. But the closeted world of ballet training, it's 24-7. Yeah. Um, as it, we, yeah. I guess they do now, but in that time, was there much pastoral care from the um, the ballet school? I think there was. There were kids from all <coughs> over the world. I imagine there were. Yeah. There were. It was, and I was in what was called the international class. Indeed, they had a girls' class that was only international students, and then they had two or three classes of 
British students, uh, and I was in the boys. Not so much. They were all, but the, you know, we're talking a class of probably twenty-five students. You know, most of whom were British and had been through an exhausting audition process. <laughs> you walked straight in. And then I walked in the door. Yeah. Uh, but I remember even, you know, week one, they paired me up with one of the British um, students who, who to today is still a friend, etc. And So, yes, they did look after your pastoral care. I think they needed to in those situations. Can we do a, a quick sidebar with your <coughs> mum? Because she also worked in the airline industry. Didn't she, she did. She's got quite a um, claim to fame. <laughs> she, she does. She was one of Australia's first um, air hostesses, as they were called. Then. Yes, flight attendants. <laughs> flight attendants these yeah. days, but in those days they were air hostesses, um, all female. Um, and she uh, joined TAA back in 1951, I think it was, early 50s. Um, and travelled around Australia. Very glamorous job then, and early days of, of you know, passenger aviation in Australia. Uh, she ultimately moved a few years later to McRobinson Miller Airlines or MMA in Western Australia. In the days when it was a DC three, uh, and it took four days to fly with passengers from Perth to Darwin, stopping overnight at homesteads and wow. you know pioneering days and indeed that's where she met my father right. uh, eventually as who was the chief engineer of MMA and you could smoke on a plane probably I suspect you could do just about anything you wanted on a plane <laughs> in those days if you were paying for it you had the money yeah yes absolutely yeah, right so um look gee ballet is quite an extraordinary discipline we touched on it a little bit um, a moment ago about that incredible discipline that you need. I mean, at the school, I mean, when you're in a company, you seem to just eat, sleep and breathe the ballet. You do, you do. I think, I think even today, much of that is the same. I think there's a lot more support these days for dancers um, in terms of their mental health, their, their f you know, physical training, you know, in terms of physios and massage therapists and all of that sort of thing are, are provided and fantastic so it should be um, I think uh, it certainly was to a certain extent in my day but um, but otherwise it was the uh, you know your colleagues basically that provided the social support and the mental health um, support when required because it was it was an exhausting uh, particularly in the UK I danced in London for four years and then in Berlin for two. So those were particularly London <coughs> with London Festival Ballet. Uh, you know, it was eight performances a week, Wednesday, school's matinee, uh, bumping on Monday. And you're sharing incredible intimacy um, with your personal lives, etc. Um, becoming, you know, I hate that term, but you are, you do become like a family. But, I mean, I'm, and I'm sure that has its positives, but I imagine there'll be quite some challenging times if uh, you have a bust up or a blue or disagreement. I can remember those times, Peter, <laughs> yes, on the odd occasion. Yes, you can have some very, very difficult times, but I think the positives of it uh, far outweigh any of those sort of negatives. It really is a family. I also hate that term, 
but um, but it is true. You're you're there to support yourself um, and your colleagues around you. Um, you know, you form very close colleagues that any spare time that you happen to have, you'll tend to share together. Mm. Um, you just don't have time to have external friends. I should, Sadly. I should qualify why I hate that term family, and you might add as well, um, because it, it's a workplace, isn't it? You I, go in. I um, find it quite patronising, I yeah. have to say, and I hear it to this day. I still hear it constantly, and I cringe. Personally, I cringe when I hear it. It, it, it is. It's all about the workplace. You have a professional relationship with your artists, your Employee, staff, yeah. whoever they are. Yeah. Family just, I'm afraid, doesn't do it for me, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, I mean, the theatre is quite a unique employment place, I suppose, because you can, you are forced to, to work with your colleagues in a short period of time, or it might be a couple of years. Um, you have to bond quickly, and then all of a sudden that show is over, and you go your separate ways. But, and you may never see them again, but when yes. you do, you generally can pick up from the, the day you left off. Yes, which is, which yes. Is nice. There is that com- camaraderie, I guess. So. Yeah. yeah. And because we have so many different jobs in a career, unlike anyone else, I think, we develop those skills. Yes. So you leave the, uh, the Royal Ballet School and take up a contract with London Festival Ballet. That's right. All those uh, British boys that I referred to earlier, they were on the sort of priority list, having come through the White Lodge, the junior school of the Royal Ballet for many years. So they all went into the Royal Ballet, which was sort of, you know, top of the bill. I would have loved to have gone into the Royal Ballet, but that wasn't for me. So the second company in in the UK uh, is... London Festival Ballet. It's now called English National Ballet. It's changed its name since I was there. Did you have any regrets or disappointments that you didn't get into the the Uh, top league? Look, I think uh, probably at the time, yes, thinking, oh, gee, you know, that's the pinnacle. Because, again, your entire focus at, at that school is training to be a Royal Ballet Company dancer. You know, indeed, the the women are you know, they have to be a certain height. Now, I hope, you know, this has probably changed a little bit, but in those days, in in the 70s, we're talking, um, you know, women had to be a certain look, certain height certain to fit weight. into the... Certain weight, absolutely, to fit into the corps de ballet. Indeed, certain temperament, um, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't looking for individuals um, out of the school, uh, particularly. Obviously, yes, there were wonderful soloists that came out of the school etc and and blossomed and had wonderful careers but so I went I I auditioned with a couple of other boys from the the same class graduating class and we all got into the the London Festival Ballet at the time and it it's a big company it's a touring company I have absolutely no regrets that I actually got into that company I think I probably had a a much better time indeed that touring the Royal Ballet doesn't do as much touring certainly as um, at the time. And you got to see see the world and certainly around Europe. Yeah. I came home to Australia. I went to America. Uh, you know, dancing at the Metropolitan Opera House. You know, dancing at the around different venues in Australia, around Europe, um, and certainly around the United Kingdom. We would do what they call provincial tours, and we'd do a week's run in major cities around the UK, you know, for eight to 12 weeks at a, at a go. 
So it was hard work being on the road, uh, trying to eat, dance, sleep. <laughs> it literally was. Um, I, I, I suppose you're like, you're like a, um, a prime racehorse when you're working in a company like that. Um, in that you have to remain conditioned and, and eat well and all that sort of thing. Is, is that a challenge? I mean, uh, it do is. you just sit down with a bucket of ice cream some nights? or <laughs> Probably love to, and I suspect I probably did on too many occasions. But um, yes, you've got to look after yourself. Um, you know, while it's a company of 80 people, we're doing large traditional works, you know, the full classics. Um, we haven't got a lot of dancers to step in if there are injuries. So you've got to make sure you're not injured. Um, I think if you became injured regularly or something, then probably your career with the London Festival Ballet would be uh, at a close. So certainly you you need it. And just finding something, you think you're in the middle of, uh, you know, Liverpool, you you rehearse all afternoon. You've got a a show starting at 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. You've got to eat quickly hopefully you had something for breakfast in the morning just the hours um and you know you've got to eat between five and six sort of thing now that's not a time usually when restaurants or places are open so we would but you know again the intelligence system within the company told you where the good digs were to stay well i was going to say certainly nowadays um there is a great education about nutrition for dancers uh, did that happen then, or that that was just sort no, of uh, you, not pick, in you those picked days. that up from the people that you're working with? I think so. And you're again, you're. I don't think we knew a huge amount about nutrition, to be honest, in the company. Um, I think it was something touched on at the school, uh, but not a lot. So yeah, I think it's something. And you were working so hard that you know you were reasonably fit, etc. Anyway, um, but you know the idea of gyms and things like that back then. Uh, you know, now dancers, they go to the gym, they usually have them provided as part of their, uh, the, the company provides for them, etc. Or they have in-house gyms, um, you, they have in-house nutritionists, etc. We didn't have any of that sort of thing. So, yeah. so what brought you back to Australia? Uh, I, I, after four years at London Festival Ballet, I sort of decided I'd ridden, risen up the ranks of a, a major company like that. I was what they called a corifee, which is sort of the senior corps de ballet. So I hadn't made it quite to soloist. And I felt at that point um, I needed a change in terms of different choreographers and different challenges of work, um, you know, doing the full classics. And I'd worked for years with Rudolf Nureyev, who used basically London Festival Ballet was Rudy's backing band, if you like, for all those years. So that helped with touring to New York and Washington and around Australia. It was with Rudolf Nureyev as the principal, so which was fantastic Um, and lots of stories there, too. But it I just needed another challenge. So I started auditioning for a few companies in Europe. I didn't want to go home to Australia yet. Um, and I ended up in, in West Berlin. It was West Berlin at that time. The wall was still up. And uh, I joined their main dance company, which is Deutsche Oper Berlin, which is part of the opera house within, in the opera house style within Europe. So I danced there for two years um, in West Berlin, which was also amazing because they had a whole range of different choreographers that we hadn't had 
in London Festival Ballet, Yuri Killy and um, Hans van Manen from uh, Holland also. So um, Balanchine, I'd never done a Balanchine, George Balanchine work um, in London. So it, it was wonderful to have those challenges. I was, I came in as a sort of soloist level um, with, uh, I, there were some dancers that had been in London Festival Ballet, so I had a few friends there. Um, it was it was hard living in Germany, uh, West Germany at the time. I didn't speak German. I tried to learn it, um, so that was quite challenging. But again, that uh, you know, I was in a company of about fifty to sixty dancers at the time. I think out of that, there were five Germans in the company. So very international, a lot of American dancers, indeed several Australian dancers. Uh, so again, the, the group of friends, uh, very close group of friends again that I'm still in touch with these days. So. What are the challenges working with different choreographers? You, you, you said that you really enjoyed that, uh, mm. that process. I guess they're asking you to engage in a different way with your body or... Absolutely, different they style. They communicate differently. Absolutely, all of that. Yeah. Um, they work in different ways. Uh, their choreography can be quite challenging in different ways that you, than you're used to. Most of these were sort of uh, contemporary classical choreographers, whereas not, not quite as traditionally classical as I had been used to in London Festival Ballet, which was very much a traditional classical company. We did also some contemporary works, but not a lot. Whereas Berlin did a lot more of those sorts of works. So that was new and refreshing for me and, and I relished the challenge of that sort of work. So, What about working with someone like Rudolf Nureyev? What do you learn as a dancer from watching someone like him prepare, perform, uh, lead How a to be an artist, yeah. I think. He, he was what I call a performer. He could walk to the middle of the stage to start a solo in complete silence, you know, of a very large stage, stand in fifth position, and the audience would go wild. And he hadn't done even <laughs> done one step. That was Rudolph. That is an artist, a performer. He had an animal instinct for being an artist. And, and that I don't think I've ever seen in any other, virtually any other artist like that of Rudolph's. The uh, career of a dancer is relatively short, I would it say. It is. Not in all cases, but, you know, um, what, 25, 26? Uh, well, they, were, they did a study of Australian dancers a number of years ago now, but 80% of Australian dancers retired between 25 and 30. Wow. And I eventually, after two years in Berlin, it, it, I you know, was also happy to cope with snow, freezing cold weather which I just for a boy from Perth wasn't quite used to even via London so I came back home to West Australian Ballet first as a guest artist and then uh, at full time with the company under Garth Welsh and then under Barry Morland. They created that great um, ballet Cal didn't they about Kalgoorlie? That's right I was the Tell me about that I'm fascinated. Well, I was the principal dancer with that yeah. uh, when it uh, which was fantastic. Uh, my first sort of 
principal role in that sort of way uh, in Perth. So the narrative was about gold mining? Or? It was. It was set Cal as in Kalgoorlie, yeah. gold mining town in Western Australia. Um, it was about the discovery of, of gold in the town and the relationships of various people, etc. Um, but they put a bit of money, the government put some extra money into it because it was the 150th anniversary of Western Australia at the time. Uh, this is 1979 that I first came back. So I came back with the company and danced with them for that season for three months, did a short tour with them afterwards. Then I went back to Europe and joined Berlin then. And then two years later, I sort of went back to West Australian Ballet, said, hello, I'd love to come home. <laughs> and Garth Welsh arranged for me to join the company in 1982, that would have been. So you were homesick or you were just craving some warm weather um, again? Meanwhile, my family had all returned from Nepal, uh, Nepal yeah. and via India, where my dad had moved to. But So they'd all come home. So yes, there was a bit of that. And I think just wanting to come home, I think I'd had my, my odyssey away. Uh, I look forward to, again, new challenges working with West Australian Ballet. Um, you know, they were a much smaller company when I joined them, that 16 dancers, eight male, eight female, that was it. But a lot more touring, touring around the state and interstate. Uh, which was fun and uh, different choreographers again you know that's that's a, a big challenge and, and excitement for a dancer uh, working with different choreographers as I've said a number of times now so equally with West Australian Ballet Barry Morland came into the company um, when Garth was there and then came back as the the new artistic director after Garth left after a year or 18 months of when I returned so so again Barry was ahead of his time, really, in many respects, in doing... Um, he, he'd studied, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, with Martha Graham, or he was very he, Martha Graham uh, influence. He was, mm. he was. He, um, his, his origins go way, way back to the you know, early days of, of ballet, also in, in Australia. But he did, he was uh, Martha Graham trained. Um, he had danced overseas and trained overseas for many years. Indeed, he was, when I joined London Festival Ballet, he was the resident choreographer oh, wow. with London Festival Ballet. Had a very successful creation called The Prodigal Son uh, and was really, you know, the talk of the town, if anything, in, in London at the time. So I knew Barry from that time as well. Uh, and then he came to take over West Australian Ballet, which was wonderful for me, another choreographer that I had known from London indeed. So, so with a dancer's career uh, finishing up possibly between ages 25 and 30, how important is it for them to think about a second phase of their career? Well, it, it, it is important. I can sit here and say that now. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, you obviously don't go into the profession thinking about, oh, my career's going to be finished at 26. I need to you think don't. about another job. It's when that time is looming through injury or age or whatever that you suddenly start to... You do. What were your thoughts? Well, my thoughts at the time uh, were, well, jeepers, what am I going to do? I knew that I didn't want to be a choreographer or a dance teacher. Uh, I, I thought, uh, you know, look, I'm not, I don't see myself with any great skills in choreography. I'd had a few goes, as you do with various programs and companies, but I didn't see any great talent there. I didn't want to add to the list of bad choreographers, and there are a few of them out there. Um, so I 
had been the union rep at London Festival Ballet for at least a year or two years while I was there. So I got a little bit involved in, you know, a bit of the management and, and you know, various issues that came up to do with dancers. And as one of the reps, there were a number of us, not me alone, in a big company like that. Um, so that sort of triggered an interest in, well, what, you know, managing companies, what, what's that all about? And um, at the same time that I was, I, I had injuries, I had knee injuries, lower back injuries. It was getting to the point in my fourth year with West Australian Ballet where it was painful to even plie um, or do a class. I wasn't finishing classes fully. So that's, and, that's what brought about your retirement injuries? Yes, yeah. yeah, it was very much injuries. And I talked to Barry about it and uh, decided, you know, I need to do something. He was very supportive of me moving into something else. And, you know, coincidentally, good luck, I don't know what it was, but um, WAPA, WA Academy of Performing Arts, introduced arts management. As a course. The only undergraduate course in Australia at the time. Uh, the uh, uh, you know virtually the year that I was thinking about it they were talking about introducing it Barry Morland uh, was again very supportive and talked to me about it and what it might be and my family was very supportive as well Barry was so supportive he um, he used to sit at the time on the Australia Council on their performing arts board and apparently he, he had some discussions with the officers there and I ended up with a, through application and, and success, getting a, again, would you believe, a grant. And the category was retraining for professional dancers. I think they had it there for about five years and it's never appeared since. Oh, really? And well. I received, uh, you know, and it, it Probably wasn't a huge amount of money at the time, something like ten or twenty thousand dollars, but it was to help your retraining, and basically that subsidised subsidised my time at Whopper. Who who was running the um, the course then at arts management? Was that Bruce? Was he? No, no. it was before Bruce. It was oh. a, a man called Nigel McComb. Right. Uh, he set up the original course. Uh, I was one of five that were the intake for year one, and I was the first graduate because the others either went part-time or fell by the wayside. And I was able to vote, devote my entire time because I was uh, able to use some of my grant money to live and eat and pay the rent and all of that sort of thing. Was it a three-year course? Uh, in those days, it was an associate diploma, so it was right. a two-year course. Right. Uh, but they used to tell me, oh, no, we're setting it up to become a degree course, and actually what you're doing in two years is really what they'll be doing in three, three. years. So, And I just, like a sponge, relished it. What a place to be able to do a course like that in, in the confines of dear old Whopper, you know. So you were working with uh, all of those people there. It was in the days of um, the wonderful Jeff Gibbs. Um, uh, it, was, it was amazing times to be there then. So did they have you go on secondment at all to, to learn on the yes, job? Yeah. Yes, yes, so they still to this day have a, the, the last semester is secondment. Uh, during the course, I'd, I'd um, heard of this wonderful Sydney-based manager called Paul Isles, uh, who used to run, you know... He worked the, in Perth for a while, didn't he? Or? He did. He yeah. came over to Perth 
and worked there for two years at the old Hole in the Wall Theatre with Raymond Omidyar. That's right. And he came into, I forget why exactly now, but either to restructure it or get it back on its feet, etc. Anyway, he was there. I knew he was there, and I thought to myself at the time, um, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to go in and do a secondment with him? So in I went for my 12 weeks, and I basically worked one-on-one with Paul Isles. I, I walked in day one, I remember, and he said, OK, you're going to be responsible for marketing the next show. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> so it was that sort of working with him, obviously, closely. But I had all facets of running a theatre company. And this is in the day when no computers, you know, the finances were done in a great big ledger book. (laughs) Oh, it sounds so antiquated now, doesn't it? (laughs) I remember us getting worried one day there because we couldn't quite resolve, you know, 20 cents or something or other or 50 cents. And the treasurer of the time came in and within, you know, five minutes he'd found it and sorted it all out. So, So this is... It was a really um, top-level opportunity to work with this major producer of Australian theatre uh, who, again, went overseas afterwards and ran theatres and companies in Scotland and in the UK after he left Perth. So what an opportunity. I, um, it, I was also very lucky during that time to work with other people and do some casual work with people who... And people would recognise me, would you believe, from my days of dancing with West Australian Ballet. So that was obviously a nice little entree. Oh, yeah, Shane, I remember you when you danced, etc. So at least you get your toe in the door if you're trying to sell them a show or talk about a media release that you'd done, that sort of thing. So, So it was wonderful. And also really provided the opportunity for my first job. Which was Deck Chair? Deck Chair Theatre. Um, not, no longer there, of course. Um, they, yes, they, they closed uh, doors, what, three or four years ago now? Uh, at least, yeah. probably five or six now would be, at least. Um, and sadly, we see that too often. You know, com- Great companies have made a mark. Just, they have, uh, but uh, they go through good times and bad times, and I think the board of Deck Chair at the time, they were going through a rough patch at the time and just couldn't see it working, so they decided it was nothing to do with government that they would um, close up the company. So very sad for Perth to lose, you know, another company. The Hole in the Wall Theatre Company had already closed. Um, we've lost a number of theatre companies now, as you're the probably aware Perth over theater the company. years. Perth Theatre Company, Thin Ice, Effie when Matt Crump. Lutton left. Effie Crump. Jeepers, I think we better stop there, yeah, Peter. Yeah, RIP. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, um, Paul Isles... Uh, I applied at the time, again, this would just never happen these days, to be the the general manager, I think it was called administrator in those days, of Deck Chair Theatre. Uh, you know, again, it was a very small company. There was really just the artistic director and the administrator and a couple of casual staff. And what, D- Deck Chair were doing children's theatre? Uh, they did some children's theatre, but they also did um, mainstream adult work. Uh, Di Shaw was the artistic director when I first joined, and then Phil Thompson, who is still working in Western Australia, he joined the company and he very much wrote new plays at the times, with the likes of uh, Ken Kelso, uh, etc., about Fremantle stories and Fremantle history, and we really developed um, a very substantial audience of 
local people coming to see stories about their history over that time. And we would do at least one, if not two, new productions um, each year at Deck Chair Theatre. It was really fantastic years, and I, I look back at Deck Chair and think those were some iconic, an iconic period for Deck Chair during that period with Phil producing new plays and yeah and I learned heaps that was I was thrown in Paul Isles said to the board chair he can do it he'll be able to do it yes okay he is a graduate but he'll be able to do it I promise you and I was given the job you've got to serve an apprenticeship don't you and you you learn by doing you You do and I made mistakes um you know a number of mistakes in that first year but uh, you know and the company was in a difficult patch financially anyway and so it was difficult. I remember sleeping on the floor in the office a few times um, trying to get grant applications finished or financial reports done for the board and stuff like that so and we used to tour the company at, you know around Western Australia particularly we went off to the bicentennial I remember in um, 88 uh, to Brisbane to do a season yeah, it, it, it was exciting times and I was passionate and devoted to my career then as well, you know, very much so and soaking up things, making my networks with various people and I stayed there for three years, three and a half years with Deck Chair Theatres. So. And in a great moment of serendipity and full circle, you end up back at the WA Ballet as general manager. I did. How did that yes. come about? Well, um... I did. <laughs> was that uh, odd that you... I mean, uh, it's probably it, the last it, thing you'd ever expect you were going to do. It was. I had, after Decture, I joined our local Department of Culture and the Arts and I did a number of years there as their project officer for music and dance. They were focused on a period of trying to develop dance in Western Australia and so that's why they wanted someone with a dance background. So, again, serendipity, um, in I went as their project officer and they learnt all about government, uh, the processes of government, the politics of government, um, which have held me well and truly into my career when I went back to government eventually. But um, from there, after three and a half years, I thought, you know, I'd really like to. For me, people working in government need to also have currency about the sector that they're working in. I think that's very important. Doesn't always happen. So I wanted to get back out into the sector and you know I had, didn't see my days as a producer and an arts manager were over. So I applied for West Australian Ballet. And again, I got the job, um, which was amazing. You know, running one of our state's largest companies. I imagine there would have been a bit of competition too for a, a job like that. I suspect there would have been. Yeah. Yes, there would have been at the yeah. time. But um, anyway, they gave it to me. Right. Um, and would you believe I went back into that company and there was Barry Morland, the artistic director that I'd left as a dancer, still there. And so he and I worked very closely in partnership over the next three and a half years while I was there. Um, I imagine um, you've been in several companies. It's quite important for that general manager and artistic director to have a, a, understand each other and have that close working relationship. It's a marriage, yeah. Peter. Yeah. That's um, what I always say. And like any marriage, if it doesn't work or things start happening, uh, it's time to separate, divorce, whatever. Um, but what is it, so does the artistic director come up with the the, the dream and, and, and the, the want and the magic and you've got to make it work? 
artistic vision, I think you're talking Art- about. <laughs> <Peter>. <laughs> they certainly do. And, and the artistic vision overall, and then the underlay of that, of course, is the programming of individual either theatre plays or whatever. And but, but at the same time, I guess you've got to come in too and tap on the shoulder and say, hey, can we just pull back a bit? Can oh, we, we've got to totally. be mindful of this budget and, and that consideration and totally. this but casting. And I, I have to say I've been very lucky working with artistic directors in my career that have, a, have an understanding at least um, of, well, yes, that's my vision, but either it's got to be staged or I'm not... I might want to do ten plays, but... We don't have we have, we only have the money to do six, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they've all been, you know, sensible and and understanding that they need to work with me to help create that vision. I'm I'm a facilitator. That's what I see my role as an arts manager. Yeah. I'm there to facilitate the art, whatever that is, mm. and. Um, so I'm very much secondary. I take a behind-the-scenes approach. I don't like being the, the the profile, the person out there. That needs to be the artistic director, the leader, um, I believe, and, and should be. So, Because you helped steer Black Swan Theatre Company for several years, which is the, the state's um, flagship theatre company. It is. What's the difference between running a theatre company and a ballet company? Are there any differences? Uh, no, no, there are differences. Um, generally, with a ballet company, you will have a... F- well, certainly at the levels that I've worked in, luckily, um, you have a full-time ensemble of dancers. Um, you have... Uh, certainly with West Australian Ballet. So you've got artists that are there uh, and uh, you're nourishing and, and developing and training and working with all the time. So that's quite different... Um, Obviously, in Australia, we don't really have an ensemble theatre company, uh, certainly in Western Australia. So you're you're working with individual actors. Um, and, you know, that can be a good thing as well in that you've got different actors coming in for different plays who have strengths and uh, for that particular type of production, etc. So there are good things and bad things about having an ensemble or not having an ensemble, of course. Um, so, yes, no, there are. And, I, you know, dancers... Dancers, I think, again, you know, I hope it's changing, but I think they're not very vocal often. Uh, They often don't stand up for their own rights, and I think I certainly was able to help them in that respect, I think, having been a dancer and come from that world. Uh, Whereas theatre artists, actors are much more vocal. They're um, probably more unionised, I guess, in many respects than dancers. Not that dancers aren't, but, uh, yeah. So they, they, yeah, it is a different world. It must be frustrating in, in Western Australia to see the enormous wealth, and I'm thinking of personalities from the mining sector, etc., cetera, um, who have, you know, huge bank balances. Uh, but is it necessarily invested in the arts? Could, could some of those personalities sort of be a bit more generous with, with, with fostering artistic life in WA? I think yes is the short answer. There are a number of uh, wealthy Western Australians that are certainly engaged with the arts. I think our philanthropy programs in general, in this country and certainly in Western Australia, partly thanks to the Australia Council and various programs they've run over many years, 
uh, philanthropy or individual or private giving is now in a much better place in Western Australia and support for our, certainly for our key organisations um, across the breadth of the arts is much stronger. That said, I think there's an awful lot of money out there that, and individuals that are not supporting the arts, either because they're supporting other things, yep. of course, or not engaged with the arts. But um, I'd like to think, I mean, I know, you know, there are some major programs and projects, you know, we have, I, I was at the Powerhouse this morning. In Your Sydney. wonderful powerhouse yeah. in Sydney. I'd never been before, wow. would you believe, all these years. Yeah. There it is, an old power station. And look at what they've done to it. In Perth, we have uh, an East Perth power station that has been sitting there derelict on the shores of the Swan River, opposite our wonderful new billion-dollar stadium, football stadium, yeah. and is just crying out for the likes of, of a couple of our billionaires and I do say billionaires yeah. to come in and say we're going to turn that into an art center uh, so you know I think I think people are starting to give more but I think I'd like to see some more wealthier West Australians step up it tends to be now that when you get when you're you're out seeking funds as an arts manager or indeed donating as a donor, as I do as well, you're seeing the same faces. It's the same family foundations. You know, the forests, um, a number of... Andrew Forrest is a great philanthropist and a huge supporter of the arts, as one example. And there are a number of families that um, donate to the arts and have done for many years, but they're the same faces. We need to penetrate the next the next level, the next generation of donors to support the arts, and we're not doing that particularly well yet. It's a, it's a, a specific skill, I suppose, to sort of foster those <coughs> relationships and... And long-term, you know, it yeah. is. So I mean, the, the individual's entitled to do what they want with their money, but I think that, you know, when you're earning those billions, etc., you have a responsibility to give back to the community and well and you know again we'd like to see that arts is part of the community you know we talk about the obviously the intrinsic positive side of the arts uh, is so important for Australia for our profile for for our profile overseas um, and as a state for our profile interstate you know we're a long way away over in Perth that's one of our big challenges so our artists need to be seen elsewhere. They need that support. So uh, it, it is, let alone the health and the social benefits of the arts in the community, which are, you know, regionally, et cetera, et cetera, which are now, I think, being talked about more and are, are more apparent to the community. So it would be nice to see people with large amounts of money starting to support the arts. And, you know, their particular area that, you know, not generally, but... If they like theatre or dance or visual arts, pick something and and try and engage with that area and, and become a supporter. And it is a long term. You know, it's building relationships. That's what it is. What do you love about West Australia? What keeps you there? Well, I, being, I a came, sand, being a sand groper. Well, I am a sand <laughs> groper, yes, and proud of it. Peter, um, I came back to Western Australia probably when I left... 
West, uh, West Australian Ballet as, as general manager, that would probably have been the time when I should have or could have gone on to a career in, in the eastern states, as we say, yeah. uh, and gone off to Sydney or Melbourne to do something. But I decided I didn't want to. My family were all in Perth. Um, my friends were all in Perth. Uh, I hadn't grown up in the Australian ballet or anything like that, so um, so I decided to base myself over there. And again, it, it it's that support over there, you know, things like even when I was general manager of the ballet and then closely involved with the other four major performing arts companies over there, we did things in a different way. We supported each other. We would meet the general managers. Um, probably quarterly during that period and I used to hear from my colleagues over in Sydney or Melbourne they were aghast that such a thing happened you get together with your colleagues you know you have lunch and you discuss issues and you support each other and you know that was a foreign concept to you know a, a general manager in West in Sydney or elsewhere and I just found that strange but I think that's that gives you an idea of, of how we work in Western Australia. Um, artists, it, it is challenging, um, and you've got to find a way to make your organisation unique and unique nationally. And now, of course, we're talking globally. You know, it's not just about an Australian company anymore, I think. And for me, I think that was particularly challenging with and and successfully challenge challenging uh, with Black Swan State Theatre Company. You know, we were a relatively small state company, uh, and then we had the challenge of turning it into Western Australia's State Theatre Company as we joined that group of companies around the company. So the likes of MTC, STC, Belvoir, etc. And finding a new home, moving into the Heath Ledger Theatre. Absolutely. Yeah. So. It was about building our profi profile uh, nationally. What, how, how should we stand out as different, both amongst those companies, but also in the state at the time, up against Perth Theatre Company, other deck chair theatre, the companies that were around at that time. And in this wonderful new venue, suddenly we had, moving from the old Playhouse Theatre that, you know, West Australians and those that toured there will remember fondly, but my God, it didn't have a lot of you know um, facilities uh, backstage, and you know no fly towers. Suddenly, we were presented with a state-of-the-art Heath Ledger theatre that had all the bells and whistles. You know, some of the you know a fly system that was only one of three, I think, in Australia at the time. You know, right. push button, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we needed to grow designers that knew how to work these systems suddenly had the ability to create a set three sets over a staged work uh, you know never been able to do that sort of thing before in western australia um in theater um obviously his majesty's was there and opera and ballet were able to do that but not in theater so it was very challenging but very exciting and i think so we, we had to build relationships with our designers, with our creatives, to literally help develop them over those years. And I found that really refreshing and wonderful. And now some of them are working interstate and gone on to wonderful careers. People like Trent Sudgeist, oh, yeah, who's yeah. a lighting designer now working here in Sydney. Well, his early days were all with Black Swan State Theatre Company. 
that's where he'd learned his craft and uh, I remember getting grants for him from the Australian Council so that he could go off overseas etc. A wonderful young man and, and look at the talented man that he and designer he's become. Alicia Clements, um, you know other designers I could name. So. I think that's part of Western Australia. It's You've got to stand on your own two feet. If you want to make a career in Western Australia, it's hard. And um, you've got to look for opportunities. You've got to network. You've got to... And whether it's your company or your career, it's the same thing. Well, I was only there, as you know, for three years during my Whopper time. Three very successful years, I might add, Joyous. But, but, you know, I love Perth because it has this tremendous energy and the arts community are so welcoming and friendly, uh, supportive, uh, as indeed you certainly were to me and to a lot of other young artists who've come from the place. And, you know, they've got that wonderful institution like Whopper, which is feeding the world's new generations of designers and performers and dancers and jazz musicians and opera singers. And it's just extraordinary. It is. We're very, very lucky to have Whopper based in Perth. So, yes, may it... May it carry on for many, many years. I'm sure it will. And with people like you serving on boards and and contributing to the community, I know it certainly will. Um, Thank you. It's been delightful catching up and uh, talking about uh, your history in dance and arts management today. And um, it's nice, as you say, to have a West Australian appearing on stages. Thank you very much, Peter. I hope I'm the first of many West Australians. Well, as we've discussed, I'll I'll be over soon and um, there's a lot of people that I'm sure I can catch up with. Thank you for the opportunity and all the best with Stages. Thanks, Shane. Bye. Have you subscribed to Stages yet? Do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through Wooshka. You can also find the podcast in Spotify. Please take the time to rate and review the podcast. It helps to grow our audience and reach more Stages listeners. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time on Stages.